The U.S. Arab Radio Network is proud to offer the Ray Hanania Show with veteran journalist Ray Hanania, the U.S. correspondent for the Arab News newspaper. U.S. Arab Radio broadcast content Monday through Friday at 8 a.m. on WNZK AM 690 in Detroit, WDMV 700 in Washington, D.C., and simulcast through stations around the country. Programs will rerun from 5 till 6 p.m. Visit us on Facebook at U.S. Arab Radio. And we're also streaming live on Facebook.com forward slash Arab News. And welcome to the Ray Hanania Radio Show. I am Ray Hanania. It is October 25th, Wednesday, Season 3, Episode 26. Um, we're going to be talking with uh, several guests. We have Sir Daniel Seidman, who's lived in Jerusalem since 1973 and is a member of the Israeli Bar Association since 1987. He specializes in the geopolitics of contemporary Jerusalem and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. He's the founder of Terrestrial Jerusalem at TJ.com. And in 2010, he was awarded the title of Honorary Member of the Order of the British Empire by Queen Elizabeth in recognition of his work. He's going to look at an Israeli perspective from the center on the conflict in Gaza. Then we're going to talk with Julia Tuma, who is the spokesperson for the United Nations Relief and Works Agency, UNRWA. Tuma was appointed Director of Communications at UNRWA uh, for Palestinian refugees in the Near East in September 22. She covers all agency fields of operation, the occupied Palestinian territories, the Gaza Strip, the West Bank, including East Jerusalem, Syria, Lebanon, and Jordan. And then we'll uh, have a discussion with the editor of Arab News, Faisal Abbas. Uh, Faisal is going to talk to us about how the Israel-Hamas conflict is being portrayed in the Western media, commenting on the debate that took place between Bassem Youssef, the renowned Egyptian satirist, and Piers Morgan, who hosts a program called Uncensored in Britain. The episode received more than 17 million viewers. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk with our guests here at the Ray Hanania Radio Show. ArabNews.com, bringing you breaking news from across the Middle East and the latest on Arabs in America. Get inside the latest headlines with expert analysis and insights at ArabNews.com. Join over 5 million Facebook fans and over 10 million monthly readers. ArabNews.com, news that matters to you. Get ready for an amazing experience at Ishtar Restaurant on 15 Mile Road in Sterling Heights. Enjoy excellent hospitality from owners Ali Abagdadi and Fatty Bottom serving the best in Mediterranean food. Try Chef Ali Abagdadi's famous shawarma, the best Iraqi grills and food, and the best Arabic and international dishes. Dine in our authentic atmosphere or take out. Call 586-698-2585 or check us out on Facebook. Ishtar Restaurant practices all seat guidelines and is open every day 11 a.m. to 10 p.m. Have an amazing experience today at Ishtar Restaurant, 3625 15 Mile Road, Sterling Heights. With more than 30,000 successful in vitro fertilizations, IVF Michigan is now ranked as one of America's best fertility clinics according to Newsweek magazine. IVF Michigan fertility centers are the recognized leaders in high-quality fertility care. With locations in Bloomfield Hills and nine other cities in Michigan and Ohio, IVF has experts in all aspects of the field. A founding member, American Board Certified Dr. Nicholas Shama, is one of the leading reproductive endocrinologists in Michigan and Ohio. 
He has performed over 20,000 successful IVF cases and it's helped thousands of couples fulfill their dreams of parenthood. When it's time to get personalized care from Dr. Nicholas Shama at one of America's best fertility clinics, call IVF Michigan Fertility Centers in Michigan and Ohio toll-free at 855-952-9600. 855-952-9600. With me now is my guest, Daniel Seidman. Actually, Sir Seidman has lived in Jerusalem since 1973 and is a member of the Israeli Bar Association since 1987. He specializes in the geopolitics of contemporary Jerusalem and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. He's the founder of Terrestrial Jerusalem, which you can visit online at tj.com. In 2010, he was awarded the title of honorary member of the Order of the British Empire by Queen Elizabeth in recognition of his work. And that justifies that amazing title, Sir. Sir Seidman, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you in spite of the dire circumstances and maybe because of the dire circumstances, it's a special pleasure. That's why I always love interviewing you because of your attitude, recognizing the tragedy that we've seen so much unfold in the Middle East. How do you how, how do you view this conflict, uh, Daniel? It appears to be more intense this time between Israelis and Hamas than in past confrontation. What, what do you think Hamas was trying to do and what is Israel's objective? What do you think? Hamas has taken its fundamental Islam in the direction of ISIS and Al-Qaeda. Um, that is something that I did not anticipate. I don't think many Israelis anticipated. Um, part of this is that uh, Netanyahu, for many years, uh, bolstered the Hamas, uh, favored the Hamas, ironically, because strengthening the Hamas would give him pretext of not negotiating with the PA and with Mahmoud Abbas. Um, he had an ideology which was firmly entrenched in Israel. Hamas can be contained. We're not going to arrive at peace. We don't have to give up anything, but they can be contained. And that collapsed uh, on October 7th. Um, and it relates to your second question. Uh, what's Israel goal? I wish I knew. I doubt my prime minister uh, knows. It's one of the reasons, and there are numerous, why he's. it's time for him to leave. But his world of we can defer this problem indefinitely, we can live alongside of occupation without dealing with it, we can contain the Palestinians, the world doesn't care, we can normalize and bypass the Palestinians. All of that is clearly not true. Well, it hasn't been true for many of us all along. Um, but we're now entering into a war. We're in a war into ground operations, and it's not clear to me what the objective is. I hear from our leaders, uh, and some of them are in exemplary good faith saying, we will be victorious. Oh, great. What do you mean by that? And they don't explain it. Other than maybe implying that they will destroy Hamas and continue the way things have been? Well, you, you, people are now talking about we're not going to stay in Gaza. 
they are uh, saying, uh, we will turn this over to an international body, um, but maintain security. Yes, I can uh, see the Arab states um, uh, standing on line to do Israel's dirty work for it. Um, you are hearing um, from some military people and ironically from the victims of the worst terror who are saying, this can only end in a political process. Now, um, it's almost, uh, it's outrageous to say Babylon's that in Israel. We're considering, you know, where we experience in elements of the Holocaust, Palestinians are re-experiencing elements of the Nakba, but we have to think of the day after. There's not going to be peace the day after. There are going to be two deeply traumatized people who have uh, both suffered unspeakable horrors, and we have to pick up and rebuild. And we will be rebuilding in a Middle East which has an entirely different architecture from what we've known in the past. It's not only that the situation is unknown, at the moment it's unknowable, but it doesn't absolve us from preparing for it because it does end in a political agreement. Uh, and we have to remind ourselves of that. I remember uh, doing a lot of research about uh, how uh, Ariel Sharon uh, in the 1970s and Yitzhak Shamir believed that if they could bolster up a religious movement in Gaza uh, through Sheikh Yassin and the Islamic Association, they could create a rivalry to Yasser Arafat, who was at the time their biggest enemy, the secular uh, movement that they feared. After Arafat left, did they change? Do you think, first of all, did you do you agree with that premise that they kind of bolstered and made really the foundation, which later became Hamas during the first intifada. But it, was there a change after Arafat died? Did they look at Hamas as this is the great opportunity to keep this conflict a little above neutral, but ongoing without any resolution because of Hamas? Well, um, there have been a lot of talking heads in the recent days. You stay glued to your TV. Um, to see what is happening every moment. And, and that's a luxury, of course, that our, your friends and family, my friends in Gaza don't have. And one of the most powerful speakers was Ehud Olmert, who was furious. He was the last Israeli uh, leader to negotiate in good, pace, good faith. And he lambasted um, Netanyahu and has been doing so for years. This is a monster that you created. You made false assumptions about it because you didn't want to deal with Mahmoud Abbas. Uh, his interviewer said, you want to talk to that anti-Semite? And his response was, yes, there is anti-Semitism there. It's reprehensible, but we can do business with him. And as we speak, we, we are safe. Israelis have been safe for in many ways because of the stability of the Palestinian Authority. Netanyahu did everything he could to marginalize them and Hamas was a tool for it. What surprises me is the common knowledge was they have taken on the responsibility of governance. They remain uh, devoutly Muslim, but reality has had a moderating effect on them. 
And it turns out that that was a fairy tale that we've been telling ourselves. It was there for all to see, um, but we didn't see it. And and obviously, this has had a great impact um, in the United States, which isn't a complicated political situation. The, uh, the 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 divide, the polarization, is very wide between Republicans and Democrats. It's beyond the ability to come together and work as a team to do what's right. Um, it's impacted the Middle East. And we see now that without a Speaker of the House, the Congress is incapable of doing anything in terms of providing money other than saying we support Israel. They can't do anything else. And there's an urgency that they can't get past to get a Speaker to give Israel money. How has Biden, I mean, I still think this falls on Biden's shoulders. He's the President of the United States. How has he acted, number one? And is he capable of bringing this to a conclusion that could lead to peace? There's, there are a number of contradictions here. Were you to poll Israelis, who is the most popular person in Israel? It would be Joe Biden, President Biden. Also by the people who vilified him three weeks ago. You have to understand that um, Israelis have been orphaned. You do not have a leadership. It's, our leadership is treated with contempt. Nobody supports Netanyahu, including nobody believes Netanyahu, uh, even his supporters. And President Biden came here, uh, gave us assurances, uh, spoke with us. He was clearly genuine. And basically, he's the surrogate father of Israel at this point which kind of makes it a bit difficult to uh, appraise um, what he's going to have to deal with. His administration at the beginning um, thought that this was a conflict that could be put on the back burner. Um, you're, you know, you're not gonna get anywhere with these governments in proceeding, uh, but I think events have proven that the initial thoughts were wrong and they, they did engage somewhat. There is now a deeper recognition that you have to deal with the core issues. Um, people in recent times have been speaking about making the lives better of Palestinians, economic, you know, the, the um, improvement of the Palestinian economy. No, the deficit that Palestinians are suffering are the is the deficit of freedom, the deficit of um, dignity. And that they're not going to be bought. They're just not going to be bought. Now, I think that Biden is a responsible adult. He's dealing with a very complicated system, very complicated situation in the United States. Um, a couple of months back in one of the congressional delegations that I met atop the Mount of Olives, uh, describing how we were basically fragmenting Palestinian Jerusalem and marginalizing Christianity in Jerusalem, a member, well-known, came over to me. He's not the progressives. I would say APAC light and said, Danny, you keep this up. In five years time, you Israel will be stuck with BDS and Pastor Hagee because the center will not hold. It didn't take five years, it just took a few months. Um, uh, President Biden does not have the support of the younger generation. 
it's payback time. Now, I'm not pleased with a lot of things that I'm seeing in the nature of um, uh, the, the pro-Gazan protests, although I clearly identify with many of its goals and many of its sentiments. But it's payback time. We have been bullying people into supporting us, um, uh, repressing realities, um, you know, selling fairy tales, uh, the most moral army. Um, the Palestinians have never had it so good. Um, and young men and women are not willing to accept that. So um, there's a lot of myth shattering going on. And unfortunately, you need a sledgehammer to do it. And at the moment, it is very difficult to get reasonable conversation between those who care more about Israel and those who care uh, more about Palestinians. I can say one thing. Jerusalem is a tough city. If you don't love Jerusalem, you're not going to like it. But one of the things that Jerusalem has done for me and many others, it has condemned us to see the humanity of the other side. And we haven't missed a beat. Um, we are talking all the time. We don't test each other. We don't ask each other, what do you think? We trust each other. It's a terrible situation. We are suffering differently. We're traumatized differently. But we share the city, and we have to share some kind of political role. I, I, I know. I know that some people say that, you know, a tough Israel, I remember this goes back to when Menachem Begin was prime minister, a tough Israel can force the Arabs to accept Israel and we can achieve peace. This war has been the toughest we've seen. Is there still a thought that this toughness, the stronger Israel is, the more likely they can achieve peace by convincing the Palestinians that they, you know, that this uh, violence or response, you know, the... Uh, uh, their response to Israeli violence from both sides, but a, a tough Israel can bring peace. Do you still believe that that is the answer or is there another answer? The Israeli public's traumatized and that is not a propitious uh, circumstances in which to resume, uh, let's talk and arrive at peace. Right. We'll look the flat earth society. Um, I believe that the notion that Israel can um, bully and break the will of the Palestinians with superior force has taken a hit. Taking a hit and destroying that myth does not necessarily create an alternative. Alongside of that are all sorts of posts on social media, a young 19-year-old girl who survived the massacre saw her neighbors being slaughtered and has this remarkable clip. I would look for it in social media. It has been translated saying, this isn't a surprise. You're, you're, you've sent us iron domes. You've sent us soldiers. You haven't sent us the one thing that can work. And that is a political agreement. And that is fairness and decency. And when the ground shakes in the Eri, it shakes four and a half kilometers away in um, Gaza. And this is coming from a young woman uh, starting her life, having gone through experiences that neither you and I have seen. That is also there. One, one thing came back to me um, the third day of the Second Intifada. It started on a Friday, on, on Sunday morning. I went to see uh, my dear friend Ron Schlicker. 
the late Ron Schlicker, one of the great American diplomats uh, who was the consul general in Jerusalem. And we got together just to share thoughts. We were reeling then. And Ron said to me, Danny, bear one thing in mind. You Israelis are going to win this round. You have superior force. Uh, but never forget, you will not break the Palestinians and you will not buy the Palestinians. You will engage the Palestinians. And until you engage the Palestinians at eye level with parity, this is never going to end. And I have never forgotten those words, and it is equally applicable today as ever it was. I remember being in uh, East Jerusalem at the consulate and meeting him a couple times back in the 90s, I believe it was, a, a very decent person. The uh, There's a debate now on uh, this back and forth. I mean, let's just put the Hamas assault um, on October 7th was more than it seemed like it was more than resistance and a lot of palestinians say wait a minute we've been getting beat up and killed every month for the past 20 years and nobody really cares and then when hamas does something suddenly it becomes a major conflict is there an imbalance in the way that the world looks at the violence that happens in the middle east is there a cause for that or or is this just uh, excuses, you know, trying to explain away? Because what, and I'll say this flatly, what happened on October 7th was terrible. There's nobody I, I with any humanity who can say that this is resistance, it was justified. There was no justification for it. And yet, at the same time, there's this feeling among many Palestinians that this has been, violence has been going so long in the one direction is it surprising that it came back in the other direction and maybe even so powerfully the way this did? I'm going to probably contradict myself, uh, but the beginning of this is this was a an assault on humanity, the likes of which uh, we haven't seen. I mean, it was really, um, I can't look at the visuals and I'm not right. saying that to vilify Palestinians. Uh, I know that this is shared. You know, one of my, you know, I don't know Arabic, but my friends in East Jerusalem are telling me what the discourse is in social media. There's support for Hamas because we've been ignored for years. Nobody has counted us. Everybody's bypassed us. And regrettably, the only language that Israel understands is violence. And I have to concede, we're proving that. Having said that, among them, and this is not outward to the world, there's a great deal of discomfort over the horror in right. people among themselves. And it's largely framed in the framework of Islam and Sharia law and treatment of, uh, of prisoners. I would like to put this in the context of my daily work. I am the expert on the nuts and bolts of occupation of East Jerusalem. Um, if you, I'm the mechanic. If your occupation breaks down, bring it into my shop. I will know where to oil and what piston to change. I know how it works. Uh, but this intimate familiarity with Israeli rule led me years ago to the following conclusion that Palestinian lives matter much less and sometimes don't matter at all. The core of occupation, the essence, 
there are all sorts of mechanisms. The core is the diminished humanity of Palestinians. So anybody who in any ways condones this or expresses understanding towards this horror has a problem with me. But those who say, as King Abdullah said yesterday, there's a double standard. Of course, there's a double standard. You know, I'm consulted frequently by governments on the subject of Jerusalem, including your government and all of the presidents since Clinton won, including Trump, the Trump administration. And things have been so stagnant and so impossible, and our government has been so unengageable in recent years, they would come to me and say, Danny, what can we do? We can't get anything out of Netanyahu. We can't get a peace process. We can't walk away. What do we do? At the top of my list, or close to the top of my list, would be anything that signals in word and indeed Palestinian lives matter. Some of it can be symbolic, some of it has to be real. In Jerusalem, open the goddamn consulate. You are showing that Palestinian equities in Jerusalem are lesser than those of Israelis. And that we feel the absence of an of a, a ambassador to Palestine or a consul general. Palestinians in East Jerusalem have no political space and the physical space is shriveling and drying up and, and, and becoming smaller. We crush every political expression more radical than a scout meeting and we have crushed scout meetings. So the political energies go into the direction of people who don't ask permission, and some of them are violent. I very much am sympathetic um, with the sense that there is a double standard. It's a global double standard in all sorts of ways. Um, it's dangerous for me to express that among Israelis these days, but to be honest, that's what it is. And, and and that kind of fuel, doesn't that fuel the conflict, making it more likely that it's going to continue rather than bringing an end to it? I mean, do you do you think this Hamas attack was the last attack? The last, is this going to be the last moment of violence we ever see? Um, I just find that hard to believe. Do you believe that, that, uh, that this is, is, there's no ending to this? There is an ending. Uh, but I don't see it in, in the near future. You know, I uh, am devoted to nonviolence. I have no quarter uh, with violence, although right. um, resistance against military is a legitimate resistance of an occupier under circumstances like this, as painful it is to say that. I cannot see this conflict ending without more bloodshed. Now, I know that can be interpreted as supporting violence, no, but I try and imagine a trajectory where Palestinians and Israelis will live equally in this tortured city and in this tortured land, and I don't see it happening without more violence. I'm devoted to avoiding that. I'm trying to look in total darkness for an opening for a political process. Um, but I am afraid that I have to agree with you. Uh, this is not the end of it. My guest, uh, Sir Daniel Seidman, who is a uh, 
uh, lived in Jerusalem since 73, a member of the Israeli Bar Association, um, and the founder of Terrestrial Jerusalem at TJ.com. Daniel, it's always good to talk to you. We've known each other a long time. I admire your work. And uh, I, like you, I just uh, am, I, I can't embrace violence at all. I'm nonviolence, I, violent, I support nonviolence. And I think that that is a message that hopefully will, you know, augment itself and make a change. But Daniel, thank you so much. Thank you. And we persist. ArabNews.com, bringing you breaking news from across the Middle East and the latest on Arabs in America. Get inside the latest headlines with expert analysis and insights at ArabNews.com. Join over 5 million Facebook fans and over 10 million monthly readers. ArabNews.com, news that matters to you. Ziad Brand, quality products from our family to yours. Ziad Brothers Importing offers the finest quality products, including brands like Sultan, Kraft, Nestle, Hook, Rigo Picon, Dana, and many more. Ask your retailer to carry these fine products because you deserve the very best. For more information, visit our website at www.ziad.com. That's www.ziad.com. Ziad, quality products from our family to yours. Were you recently at the emergency room, urgent care, or at your doctor's office being told you need a hand, wrist, or elbow specialist? At the Katranji Hand Center, we offer the latest techniques in hand, wrist, and elbow care. From sports injuries to work injuries to everyday hand, wrist, and elbow problems, the specialists at Katranji Hand Center are here to get you back on track. Call us in Troy today at 248-869-4263 or visit us at katranjihandcenter.com to schedule your appointment today. Are you going to start a restaurant or a grocery store soon? Do you need floor plans and designs? Call Naji Aboud at 734-744-9796. Do you want to buy kitchen and restaurant equipment at discount prices? Call Naji Aboud now, 734-744-9796. New concept products and design, the trademark of kitchen equipment. 5% discount on all purchases of $75,000 or more. New concept products and design. New location, 31185 Schoolcraft in Livonia. Learn more at www.newconceptproducts.com. Call Najee Aboud, 734-744-9796. And now I'd like to welcome our guest, Julia Tuma, uh, who is the uh, Director of Communications at the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestine Refugees in the Near East. Juliet, thank you so much for joining us on the radio show. Thank you, Ray. Thank you. So uh, let's talk about what's happening in Gaza and in Israel and, and the occupied territories right now. Uh, how, tell me, what impact has it, has, has it had on the mission of the United Nations Relief and Works Agency? There's so many refugees in Gaza. There's still many refugees in the West Bank. This conflict certainly has had, made it terrible, hasn't it? So UNRWA is overwhelmed. Uh, at the moment in Gaza, UNRWA is hosting 600,000 people who have sought refuge in 150 of our facilities. These are things like schools and clinics and um, 
distribution center for food, a warehouse where we store our supplies. Um, 600,000 people, um, very, very overcrowded uh, situation. It's uh, um, the needs are growing by the hour. Um, we do not have supplies. We do not have enough fuel to continue delivering assistance. It's unprecedented. It's four times more than what we had planned for, for a worst case scenario. We're hosting now four times more people than we thought we would have in a worst case scenario. Yeah, and I know that there's people have asked this question of me. There are a lot of uh, refugees in Gaza, of course, but then there are many that have lived in Gaza who are now becoming refugees. What happens to them and how does UNRWAR deal with their status? Are, or are you just helping everybody that needs help? We are, we are. Uh, we're leaving no one behind. So anyone who comes and, and seeks shelter in those facilities of ours, including our schools, we of course do not turn anyone back and we provide assistance uh, to the degree possible. The issue is, is that we are overwhelmed, that our supplies are running out, that the needs are huge, that the bombardment and the airstrikes continue. And that doesn't help because with that, the number of displaced people increases, then the needs uh, deepen. And at the same time, there is no, equally, there is no humanitarian assistance that is um, trickling in, at least not enough. We've seen a number of convoys uh, that have been coming through for the past three days. 54 trucks uh, have come into Gaza. That's absolutely nothing. It's peanuts, it's crumbs. If you compare it with the numbers that, according to the UN uh, and, and UNRWA as well, uh, have is every day to Gaza, we had 500 trucks coming in, including for aid and fuel alone, 100. So we've had in three days, 54 trucks, and none of these trucks had fuel on them. The situation sounds so dire for the people there. It's it the worst, it's the worst we've seen in the Gaza Strip, which is a place that way before the war was living in deep poverty, was under a blockade where movement restrictions in and out of Gaza were very, very tight already, where at least 1.2 million people relied on food assistance from UNRWA alone, where unemployment rates among young people was among the highest in the world. So the siege came to um, further tighten that blockade and those restrictions on, on people. And it is coupled by bombardment, by airstrikes, by displacement, and also by trauma, by loss, by grief. Have, have by... any that I Go know ahead. it's to, no, I was going to say this is just so horrible. Even just talking about it makes me feel sad because regardless of who they are, we are talking about human beings and your mandate. You're not a political organization. You're there to use money and funds to provide humanitarian assistance, the daily life, the education, healthcare, correct? You pretty much help the refugees get back on their feet and redefine their life. This end of this bombardment, this assault, uh, the missiles, the uh, 
uh, all these uh, uh, explosions that have taken, how have the UN properties survived or been impacted for UNRWA, for example, schools, hospitals, and shelters? Yeah, so to, to give you the background, UNRWA is very unique like that because we are one of the oldest UN organizations working, serving the people in Gaza um, for, for more than seven decades now. And we're also the largest UN agency in, in, in the Gaza Strip. We have 13,000 staff members who work with us. Many of them are teachers. UNRWA is the only UN agency in the world that runs schools. We have UN schools, not just in Gaza, but around the region. Um, we have doctors, nurses, pharmacists, warehouse workers. We have a very big logistical team uh, that is the really the core and the backbone of our operation in, in the Gaza Strip. So right now we were forced for the past what, more than two weeks now since the war began, UNRWA was forced to close its schools in Gaza. This is depriving uh, at least 300,000 kids from education. Many, many, many of our schools have been turned into shelters where people have sought refuge. Uh, we are down to only one third uh, of capacity in our health clinics and primary health centers. And a lot of our colleagues who have been impacted themselves, who have been displaced themselves, have shifted gears to only focus on providing assistance to those who need it most, especially those in our shelters. Uh, this is horrible. Have you reached out or have you been contacted, for example, by uh, the United States, uh, which has expressed repeatedly that they're concerned about civilian casualties in Gaza? I wonder how that's translated into actually helping. Have they done anything? Has the United States provided anything to help the civilians through UNRWA? So to your question on the facilities, the UNRWA facilities that have been impacted. So not only we were forced to uh, close the, the services, like, for example, education, uh, but some of our facilities, at least 40 of our facilities of the UNRWA facilities have been impacted during the war. Uh, some have actually received direct hits. Um, these these um, facilities include things like school, our headquarters in Gaza City. I mean, I looked at footage coming out from uh, from colleagues of ours. I mean, I frequented Gaza myself uh, so many times over the past one year, and I the place is unrecognizable. Yeah, I know. It, it's rough. Have you heard from the Western governments or Western powers at all? Um, expressions of concern, uh, support, other than the convoys, that been allowed by Israel to get in. I, because I know it wasn't Egypt that decides what goes into Gaza, it's Israel. And so, Ray, those... yeah, Ray, th there is advocacy efforts at the highest level of the UN to A, lift the siege on Gaza and make sure that there is uh, a sufficient lifeline of humanitarian supplies that come into the Gaza Strip on a daily basis um, sufficient and not what we have right now because what we have right now is not enough. So that's number one. And then B is to bring in fuel as soon as possible to be used for humanitarian purposes, not only for UNRWA, 
but also for hospitals and medical facilities, for bakeries. We've been supporting, UNRWA has been supporting bakeries with, we give them wheat flour so that um, they can produce bread. And we give the bread to people in the shelters and, and outside the shelters as well. Um, it's important for water pumping, um, for the water stations. So fuel is our second request. And the third request is in line with our Secretary General. Um, we call for a humanitarian uh, ceasefire so that civilians, wherever they are, wherever they are, are protected so that we spare more lives from being lost. There's been colossal amounts of pain and loss and grief and despair and uncertainty and fear. This has to stop. I, I, I hope it does stop. I mean, I, even like the medical side, can you tell us about the health side of what you offer and provide the urgency given all the casualties and the injuries and everything? Uh, you mentioned you were at only a third capacity. That means you're only able to support one third of what you've been able to support. And yet I bet the casualties have increased five, 10 times, you know, the needs of right. the health so area. Yeah, so UNRWA, UNRWA runs primary healthcare centers. Uh, we do not run hospitals in the Gaza Strip. Okay. Um, but but we do know that in our health centers, which are running at one third of the overall capacity, um, medicine, basic medicines are are running out. Uh, medicines for other disease, diseases, including insulin, as an example, is running out. This is why we insist on this regular flow of humanitarian assistance coming in um, and the flow needs to have what people on the ground need. So medicines, fuel, food, water, these are things that are very, very much missing. And I don't think it's too much to ask, right? I mean, this right. is the basics that people need to live in dignity. And I also think for people to live in dignity, there needs to there needs we need to have a ceasefire as soon as possible as soon as possible the humanitarian crisis there i i think at least i hope is uh pressuring the world to look at this in a different context uh, because there's so many people in need um when a refugee or a gaza citizen comes to your clinics your health clinics they really can't get medical attention then basically other than the basic services what you're saying so the overall gaza medical need is you know people think that unwa actually provides medical services but but you don't so that makes it even more uh dire for citizens you know they they think that that's something you can do but you really can't yeah yeah yeah, no, but we, we do know from, from friends of ours at the World Health Organization uh, who do support hospitals uh, in Gaza and, and everywhere in the world as part of their mandate, we do know that hospitals are also running out on fuel, on supplies, that they're overwhelmed, uh, that the doctors are exhausted very much understandably and very, very tired, uh, and they are really lacking on the basics to operate in, let's say, in an ER, emergency room, and, and others. What happens if this continues for another three weeks? Uh, what 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 do you foresee happening if this doesn't change? I mean, I know that Israel hasn't crossed the border, at least as of this uh, taping, 
Um, but you know, I, it just doesn't seem like it's going to get better anytime soon. I'm, I, people are very worried about the United Nations employees, about the citizens, about the civilians, about everybody there. What do you foresee happening? If nothing, if there's no response, as you say, a ceasefire, if this continues for another three weeks. I mean, I don't think I'm, I'm in a position to even bring myself to think what's going to happen in the next three hours. Um, it's a it's a very, very fluid and rapid situation. Um, the longer this continues, the more desperate the needs on the ground for for people in in Gaza. Um, the more the divide, becomes deeper, uh, the more polarization we're going to have, the more distant we're going to have from peace. Um, and if we want to go back to the here and now, we're terrified for the people of Gaza, including our own colleagues. I mean, just, just until today, we've been in this conflict for 17 days, we have lost already, already we have lost 35 colleagues at UNRWA, 35, they were killed. Half of them were teachers, half were men, half were women. Is some, some were um, medical professionals, including one woman who was a gynecologist. Uh, we had support staff as well, who are really the backbone of our operation. We had an engineer, we had a psychologist, 35 of our colleagues. And today is Yun Day, where we normally celebrate our staff, we celebrate the achievements of the UN, we celebrate the role the UN plays in making this world a better place. But there's nothing for us at the UN today to celebrate, nothing at all. We mourn, in fact. And we we grieve with the families and with the teams the loss of our colleagues in Gaza. I am so sorry to hear that. And I had not heard, um, although I expected that uh, people that are working in Gaza for the many different agencies, but you're with the UN, 35 UN, and these are employees of the UN, correct? that have been killed that's a that's i think that would be outrageous what has the un said about that is, is there any I, i'm sure i've seen the uh pronouncements about wanting the ceasefire coming from the highest levels of the united there's nations been, there's been actually there's been a lot said um at the highest level including our secretary general who um who put out a statement in in a form of a tweet or on X um, earlier today, and uh, UNRWA has been uh, doing everything possible to pay tribute to the colleagues that we've lost. But um, we are all in shock and we are all very, very sad. And I don't think anything that we will do will, will do justice to this loss. Some of our colleagues were killed um, in, in the line of duty. Some of them were killed while at home, sleeping in their beds with their children. I mean, half of them were teachers. So when school eventually come, comes back, the kids going to the UNRWA schools will miss their teachers 
because they were killed. So 35 employee, 35 employees across the Police. board doing yeah. different colleagues. Yes. Do you personally yes. know any of these individuals yourself? I, and I'm just worried about the rest of them as this continues. I'm so concerned and I know the world's concerned about civilians who are trying to do good um, and to see this. Any other final thoughts at all, uh, Juliet? about this conflict no, thank you ray i really really want to thank you for the attention and for the for giving us the space and i would encourage people to follow all the news on unra.org uh, if you can share that with your listeners and uh, also on we're all over social media so we're on twitter we're on facebook we're on linkedin we're on instagram um and we're in the news all right Juliet. My guest, uh, Julia Tuma, um, Director of Communications at the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestine Refugees, painting such a dire, heart-wrenching picture of what's happening on the ground. Um, Juliet, I know how difficult this is, but I so appreciate you coming on and sharing this with the rest of the world. Thank you. Thank you, Ray. ArabNews.com, bringing you breaking news from across the Middle East and the latest on Arabs in America. Get inside the latest headlines with expert analysis and insights at ArabNews.com. Join over 5 million Facebook fans and over 10 million monthly readers. ArabNews.com, news that matters to you. At Top Rehab Physical Therapy Clinic in Dearborn, we provide effective physical therapy sessions in order to limit pain and discomfort. Top Rehab provides physical therapy care for any diagnosis prescribed by a physician, and we regularly see and treat conditions such as stroke, TMJ, fibromyalgia, sciatica, joint pain, and more. We use a variety of pain management methods, including modalities, soft tissue mobilization, and therapeutic exercise. If you're in need of physical rehabilitation or physical therapy, get the highest quality health care at Top Rehab. Most insurance is accepted and we're open Monday, Wednesday, and Friday 8 to 6, Tuesday and Thursday 8 to 5, and Saturday 10 till 2. Call for an appointment today at 313-846-0555. That's 313-846-0555. Choose Top Rehab Physical Therapy Clinic on Michigan Avenue in Dearborn. Life's too short to be in pain. Life for Relief and Development has now been rated as one of the best charities for humanitarian aid. Life's humanitarian projects span the globe, and Life is celebrating its 30th anniversary of providing essential life-saving aid to people and communities in 36 countries, regardless of race, color, religion, or cultural background. Where there is life, there is hope. And when disaster occurs here or around the world, including being one of the first responders to the Turkey-Syria earthquake crisis, Life for Relief and Development rushes in to provide food, medical aid, and shelter to those in need. We are looking to help the earthquake victims, and we take 0% overhead on emergency donations. So please help improve these efforts. Learn more about our involvement to help the helpless and bring hope where it's needed most. And make your tax-deductible donation to Life for Relief and Development now at lifeusa.org or call 248-424-7493. That's 248-424-7493. 
When you're looking for the best in optical care, Dr. Imad Nakash is your doctor to see. With years of experience and thousands of successful procedures performed, you can trust your eyes to Dr. Imad Nakash. See Dr. Imad Nakash and his professional staff for your eye care needs. There's two locations to serve you. In Hazel Park, call 248-336-3937. 248-336-3937. In Rochester Hills, call 248-299-3937. That's 248-299-3937. My guest with me now is a renowned journalist, Faisal Abbas. He's editor-in-chief of the Arab News newspaper, The Voice of a Changing Region. He recently wrote a column on how the Israel-Hamas conflict is being portrayed in the Western media, commenting on a debate between Bassem Youssef, the renowned Egyptian satirist, and Piers Morgan, who hosts the program Uncensored in Britain. The episode received more than 17 million views. Faisal, you talk about the Bassem Youssef moment. Why do you feel it's a turning point in Arab representation in the Western media? Well, first of all, Ray, it's a pleasure being with you uh, on the show and discussing these important topics. Uh, with regards to why this is a turning point in Arab representation uh, in international media, I think what Basim Youssef has brilliantly done uh, is showed that Arabs are capable of representing themselves in a comprehensive, compelling, logical uh, way without uh, being uh, appearing uh, irrational or uh, emotional. In fact, it was a, a brilliant combination uh, of uh, logic uh, shrouded with a, a layer uh, of humor which is completely disarming uh, for uh, the uh, other uh, side. And what we do need is more uh, of, uh, of the same. Faisal, you make a great point. And, you know, when I see Arabs and Israelis argue about issues, the Israelis and their uh, supporters often are calm. They present facts. They, they present themselves in such a positive way. And a lot of times the Arabs that are speaking with them present themselves in an emotional manner. Doesn't that emotion undermine our ability to convey what the real story is? Well, uh, Ray, they do say that arguments are 80% uh, how you say it and 20% the actual argument. And, you know, there's a reason why we've been losing the uh, narrative and the public opinion war for the past 75 years. And that's exactly because of what you just described. Um, what Basim Yusuf managed to do is manage to come across with facts, managed to come across logical, uh, comprehensive, uh, compelling, uh, without, uh, uh, despite how difficult this topic is, without, and him having uh, direct involvement with his in-laws living there, but without showing uh, emotion. In fact, he turned it into a bit of dark humor, but I think it worked very well. I agree with you. I think he made some great points. Um, and as you know, perception is reality many times, especially to the Western audiences. Um, you also talk in your column about a rising tide of capable Arab speakers. Do you feel Israel is losing the media war at this time as a result? Well, it's not really it's not really about losing Israel losing the media war as much as them being the victims of their own actions. Ray, I've always argued that actions speak louder than words. When their own minister uh, of defense uh, goes publicly and says, we are waging war against human animals, meaning all uh, Palestinians. How do you expect the rest of the world to react? I mean, 
called me a bit call me a bit old-fashioned but I do believe in the goodness uh, of humanity and I do believe as a whole we don't accept this kind of rhetoric about anyone particularly about our fellow Arabs um, uh, who we know as per the United Nations are uh, under occupation and I'm saying this without giving any justification to what uh, members of Hamas did on the October uh, 7th uh, attack but at the end of the day two wrongs don't make a right and you cannot do collective punishment on a whole people I think Palestinians have had enough living under uh, occupation and have enough of the intimidation of this most recent right-wing government in Israel in your column which appeared October 22nd which listeners by the way can read at arabnews.com you write that you have always called for more Arab public speakers in English why do you think this has not been the case in the past well, it is mind-boggling, Ray, that all we do as Arabs is complain day and night about not having a platform and about the world not sympathizing or understanding our causes. Uh, but where are the Arab TV channels targeting um, the world? Um, isn't it ironic that uh, Israel has I-24, which is available in several languages, including uh, English, Hebrew, uh, French, and most importantly, Arabic, China CCTV has an Arabic channel, Russia Today has an Arabic uh, channel, um, France 24 and France uh, and Euro News have uh, Arabic TV channels. Um, we certainly don't lack the resources and we certainly have causes uh, to explain and win sympathy, but there aren't enough um, uh, platforms out there communicating with the world in uh, a professional, comprehensive and compelling uh, way, unfortunately. In English. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, communicating with the world in all languages. I, I, yeah, English is certainly top of the list, but we do need to be there out there in French. We do need to be there in Chinese, in Japanese, uh, in, in Spanish. Uh, and we need to explain to the world uh, why our region matters and why we believe this is a just cause. Final question, Faisal, and I appreciate you being on the radio show. You're a geopolitical analyst. How do you see this conflict ending? Well, Ray, unfortunately, there isn't going to be an easy answer nor an easy uh, solution. Um, you know, what we are expecting is to see severe uh, escalation happen over the next uh, few days. And unfortunately, uh, the unfortunate reality is uh, the people that are going to suffer the most are civilians. Uh, civilians on both sides, but mostly uh, Palestinians, uh, if history is to go by. Now, um, you know, what, what matters here is for us to understand that um, this uh, belief that a military solution can go and eradicate Hamas and that will be the end of the problem uh, could be the uh, solution. That is not going to be the solution. Um, the only solution, in my opinion, for uh, Israel's security is Palestinian justice is Palestinian rights is a two-state solution whereby each people can focus on peace and prosperity and building a better future that is the best guarantee for peace in the region Faisal Abbas I really appreciate your insights into this uh, horrible conflict Faisal Abbas is editor-in-chief of the Arab News newspaper the voice of a changing region you can read his recent columns and all of his columns at arabnews.com thank you so much Faisal thank you Ray I just want to thank everybody for joining us here at the Ray Hanania Radio Show. This is the end of our third season broadcasting the radio show. Um, we will be back in the spring, and I want to thank all of our guests who appeared on the 26 episodes 
of our radio program, which broadcasts in Detroit and also in Washington, D.C. If you want to check out any of the past podcasts that you missed, any of the radio shows, go to ArabNews.com slash Ray Radio Show. We'll talk to you later again until we see you and talk to you again. Bye-bye.